robust welcome. <laughs> Maybe I should go home. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm a little warm, so I'm going to take my jacket off right away. But it, it's, uh, it is a good evening. It's actually a beautiful fall evening. Uh, it's the favorite time of the year for me, so I'm really, really enjoying these days. Um, I'm 67 years old uh, this year, which tells you how old I am. But the reason I say that is um, I'm still very active in education, uh, teaching a little, still a little bit at Grace. I had been on accreditation teams, uh, 20 of them. I've led 20 accreditation visits in colleges all over the United States and Canada. Uh, I was chairman of the board of an accrediting association for five years. Higher education is my heartbeat. I just have a passion and love for it. I've given most of my adult life to it. But um, I'm, I'm really concerned, to be honest with you, about what's happening in our country. Um, now, I've been in faith-based, Christ-centered higher education almost my whole adult life. I started, um, I graduated from college in 1969, which tells you again how old I am, but uh, then I taught for a little bit in high school. I was doing my first master's degree and then taught a little bit at seminary when I was doing my, my uh, theology degree. And uh, yet, for the most part, what I've really, really enjoyed is, is college teaching. I, I just loved uh, mentoring and working with men and women that are, you know, from about 19 to their early 20s. Some of them start college and are 18. Um, because uh, for me personally, what was so fulfilling in that is. You have, a, you have a part in helping to equip men and women for leadership. In some cases, leadership in their homes, which most of them will be married and have children. Leadership in their churches. Some of them will be pastors. Most of them are not. Uh, and certainly leadership in business and education and throughout the, the community, depending what their vocational choice is. But uh, the, the center of what I did throughout my entire life and what I'm still doing today is is helping students to see that their walk with Jesus Christ is the most important thing. And uh, what I'm concerned about is even in faith-based, Christ-centered schools, there's less of an emphasis on that. It isn't that there isn't an emphasis, but less of an emphasis. So you take that, and then you put the state universities and secular, and when I say secular, I just mean they're non-faith-based, non-Christ-centered schools, um, when I first started in education, uh, at, at various levels as I just summarized, for the most part, people were neutral when it came to Christianity. You know, they, they didn't necessarily embrace it, but they were neutral in terms of its impact. Uh, they didn't particularly care one way or the other about it, and if you were a Christian, that's fine. But today, that neutrality in the non-faith-based higher educational institutions has shifted to hostility. And some of that is due to the nature of Christianity. Now, what do I mean by that? Western civilization is in what sociologists and scholars and lots of other people call a postmodern, post-Christian era. And that each one of those things needs to be defined. But you probably have heard about those. I'm, I'm thinking they're not new for you to hear postmodern, post-Christian. 
But what, what that means is the culture in which we live, the civilization in which we're raising our children, and in some cases, in my case, my grandchildren, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a pluralistic culture. It's an inclusivistic culture. It's an autonomous culture. The chief value of the postmodern, post-Christian era is, a, is an autonomy, a radical autonomy. And it's wrapped around individual rights and individual liberties to the extent that it doesn't matter what you believe, really. It doesn't matter what you do, really. Just make sure you don't push it on anybody else. And biblical Christianity is not inclusive in terms of what it teaches. It's inclusive in, 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 in terms of who can, who can accept it and embrace it. The gospel's for everybody. But it's exclusive, isn't it? This culture is saying to us there are not, but whether people articulate it exactly like this or not, in effect, there's many, many ways to God. The God of Islam, the God of Judaism, the God of Christianity, same God. They just worship and go about it in a different way. It doesn't matter what you believe, but don't, don't proclaim the idea that you have a corner on truth, that you have a corner on theological truth. Don't push that. We're very uncomfortable with that as a civilization. But yet Christianity in its very heart is saying, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Is that an inclusive statement or an exclusive statement? It's an exclusive statement. There's only one way to the Father. Muhammad was a teacher. Buddha was a teacher. Confucius was a teacher. Jesus was a teacher, but Jesus is also a savior. Muhammad is not a savior. He doesn't claim to be, and he isn't. Buddha did not claim to be a savior. He claimed to be a teacher. He is enlightened one. He's the Buddha, and he'll show you the path to enlightenment. Jesus is not only a teacher. He's a savior. So what our kids are facing today, and these are questions, there are seven up here. Now I know that the age differential of your kids, I, I'm not really sure I know where, where they all are. But I'm telling you right now, as somebody that's been in higher education all his life, these are the kinds of questions your kids are going to face in college today. And depending on where they go to high school, they're already facing it in high school. But I, I want to walk you through these, because these questions, these, these questions are at the heart of, of what, what you are facing, what I'm facing in the culture. And we must begin, in my judgment, and I'm speaking as an educator, as well as a Christian, as well as a pastor. I, I have all of those roles to one degree or another. But these, these are the questions that people are asking. These are the, these are the questions that, that people are being very aggressive about, and they're, 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 they're pressing it. This is the moment they discover that you are a Christian, and a Christian that's a, and I talk about it as a biblically-centered Christian, because there are lots of people that call themselves Christian. Christian's a very broad term today. Evangelical Christian used to have a defining characteristic to it. It doesn't anymore. You have to further explain what you mean. 
So a genuinely biblically centered Christian is someone who says Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He's the only way to heaven. There's no other way. There's no other name under heaven by which you're saved, Acts 4.12. So how can there only be one true religion? How can you have the audacity to say that? I mean, how can you claim that? And when our kids go to college and they have a philosophy professor who is you know, exploring all the different things about epistemology and metaphysics and all those things and starts dealing with the issues from a very non-Christian, probably hostile Christian perspective, they're going to say, you know, these Christians that talk about Jesus being the only way, who do they think they are? In a pluralistic, inclusive culture, the audacity, the boldness, the hubris, I've heard people use that, it's a great word, by the way, I love that word, but the hubris that you say, there's only one way. And that, that used to not be a big issue. It's a big issue today. Our kids are just being bombarded with that in high school and definitely in college. And um, as a part of that, the, the kind of culture that we live in, this, plural, this pluralistic, postmodern, post-Christian culture, they define terms differently. Um, I'll, I'll never forget, I was, this goes back, oh goodness, I'm not sure how many years it is, but this goes back, I was in a conference, I was participating, I wasn't leading or anything, I was participating in it, and um, it, was, it was the kind of thing, it was for educators, it wasn't a Christian one particularly, but there were a lot of Christians there, I knew some of them, some of them I didn't, but there were also a lot of people there from all over the place, and the one guy I got to know, his name was Jim as well, he was into New Age pantheism, I knew what he was doing, and I knew where he was coming from. We started talking. And during those three days, I got to know him fairly well, as you would in a three-day session like that. So the last day we were talking, and I kind of am a fan of Bill Fay and his approach to evangelism. I, I don't know if you know that him or know anything about it, but he, he's really helpful in how we deal with a postmodern, post-Christian era with our faith. And one of the things he says is you just approach people, you develop a relationship with them, to the degree you have that opportunity, and you just say, I'm just curious. You know, we've been getting to know each other, and I've told you I'm a Christian, I've told you a little bit about where I'm coming from, my values, and I'm just curious, who's Jesus to you? And you know, if they says, if they get hostile, that's okay, don't worry about it. Holy Spirit hasn't worked enough in their life at this point. Don't feel bad about it, just shut it down. It's not time. But they talk about who Jesus is. You know, and you get all over the board kind of responses. And so I, I did this with Jim. And he was saying, well, I believe Jesus. This is incredible conversation. I, was saying, I believe Jesus is God. I thought, oh, you do? But then I remember he's New Age pantheism. Everybody's God. And then his next sentence was, oh, by the way, and I believe that person walked across the street, that gal across the street, she's God. And I, you know, it's all these kinds of things in the New Age pantheism. What we're doing is we want to awaken the deity that's within you through channeling and through all kinds of things. Well, that isn't exactly what I was looking for, right? And I said, Jim, I'm just, do you mind if I share who Jesus is? And he said, oh, no, go ahead. So I'm telling him you know, the, the, the importance of my faith, what Jesus means to me when I came to know him. And he's there shaking his head. 
And I'm thinking, my goodness, I didn't expect him to respond this way. It wasn't hostile. I mean, he was, he was smiling, he was shaking his head. And then he made the classic statement, Jim, I'm so glad this works for you. It's just not for me. You see, there's that tolerance, there's that accepted, there's that inclusive. What works for you is fine. It doesn't work for me. And don't try to press me with it. Because how can you say there's only one true religion, genuine biblical Christianity? And the early Christians in the first century, that's what they faced. There are many Christian leaders today that are saying we have to go back and remember when the New Testament Gospels and the New Testament Epistles were written, that civilization was almost identical to ours. Christianity was small. It was a minority. It didn't set the agenda for the culture. There were not Christians in leadership anywhere. It was a pagan, polytheistic empire. And Christianity was a non-entity to them. And the gospel comes into that kind of world. And one of the best insights into what that was like is the epistles of 1 and 2 Corinthians. Because Paul writes a letter, two of them actually, two letters to believers who are in the cesspool. Corinth was one of the worst and immoral and corrupt cities in the eastern Mediterranean. And Paul planted a church there. What does he say to them? How does he talk to them? What counsel does he give them? We can learn from some of that. We have to remember what that was like. And that's more and more. The ancient church of the first century bears great similarities to the Christian church in the 21st century in Western civilization. My son lives in England, in London. And I'm telling you, London is one of the great centers of historic Christianity. Westminster Abbey, it's a museum. It's not a functioning church, really. Those great cathedrals. My son and his, his bride were married, and she comes from a little town called Romsey. They were married three years ago. They were married in the Abbey Church. They wanted to be married. It's a beautiful church founded in 910. It's incredible. Sunday mornings, hardly anybody in it. Because biblical Christianity is irrelevant in secular Europe. Francis Schaeffer used to say, you want to find out where America is going to be in 10 years? Look at what's happening in Western Europe. I think it's probably now more like seven years. So we, we live in this kind of a culture. And we, as, as, as lead, I'm not saying this to scare you. I'm not saying this is doom and gloom. Men and women, this is reality. And we have, to, we have to understand, this is where God's placed us. This is where we're raising our kids. This is where our church is. And we're increasingly more and more recognizing we're not setting the agenda for culture anymore. For the first time since 1607, Protestants are now a minority in the United States of America. 1607 was Jamestown was founded. That's, that in and of itself is a, is a shocking statistic. Protestants are no longer in the majority. That means they no longer set the agenda for culture. Who's setting the agenda? Well, it's lots and lots and lots of people. <laughs> lots and lots of organizations. And lots and lots of the, of the media gods and goddesses 
that are showing those passionate desires for young people, almost all of which have nothing to do with Christianity. Let me go through several more of these. This, is, this next one is a really, really, really big one, and I'm sure you are very familiar with this. But I've, I probably had this question asked me 50 times in the last year. How can your God that you say is good allow suffering and evil? As our young people must have an answer to that question. And people that, you know, the Sam Harris's and the Richard Dawkins and the, the popularizers of the new atheism, this is what they're camping on. This, this is their agenda. They're just camping on this constantly. But you know, one of the things I say is, now listen, you're raising that question, but you have to answer it too. How do you explain suffering and evil? You see, the Bible helps us to get, create a framework for suffering and evil. Of course, it begins with the rebellion of the human race in Genesis 3 and Satan and all that. The Bible gives us a framework for understanding it. And the Bible says that our God loves us so much and is so committed in his relentless grace as he pursues us that he made the decision to become a victim of evil so that he could destroy evil. That's my answer. What's yours? How do you explain it? Because any worldview, anybody that is thinking, must have an answer to that question. They must be able to explain evil and suffering. And one of the challenges for the person who's a secularist or an atheist or a naturalist is, how can you possibly have a definition of evil when you have nothing that sets your agenda of what's right and wrong? You don't believe in God. Now, I'm getting a little philosophical, so I better stop that. But that is a very, very, very important question. And we must teach, we must help our young folks to know how to answer that question. And by the way, BTW, you'd better have an answer to that question too. You should be able to answer that. Thirdly, why does Christianity seek to restrict my, my, my personal freedom? And, of course, that's a perception. But you seem to be so much against my autonomy. You want to set boundaries in my sexual life. You want to set boundaries in the language I use. You, why do you do that? How do we answer that? Well, I'm representing God who has revealed himself in Scripture. But this is a perception. Christianity is so restrictive. Now, you don't know this name, perhaps, but H.L. Mencken in the early 20th century defined Christians as that group of people in the United States who somewhere believe that somewhere someone is happy and that distresses them. Did you understand what I just said? <laughs> That's not a compliment to Christianity. But Mencken was an acerbic writer who attacked everything. So, fourthly, why has Christianity produced so much injustice and suffering in the world? Sam Harris, the, kind of the key atheist coming out of America, that's what he camps on. He talks about the history of Christianity has done nothing but sow violence, the religious wars of the Reformation, the horrific things during the medieval period that the Christian church did in the name of Christ, the crusades when we slaughtered people in the name of Christ, and on and on and on. How do you explain that? That is the atheist, the secularist, the antagonist asks our kids that question. 
And they hammer away at it. Christianity is nothing but a history of violent religion, attacking, burning at the stake, executing, cutting the heads off of people who don't agree with them. Well, that's a very distorted, warped view of the church. Did that happen? Yeah, it did happen. Some of that happened. But it is also true, Christianity has built more hospitals, more medical clinics, has translated more, put more languages into translation, and built more educational institutions than any other religion in the world. Why? Because of how they look at human beings. Tender compassion is the mark of the church. Yes, excess is no doubt about it. What, I have my students in my American history class. I have them read a book, uh, read four books, but the second book I have them read in the, in the first part of the course this is American History One, is called American Reformers. And it's the reform movement. This guy's not a Christian who wrote this book, by the way. But his argument is all of the major reform movements in American history developed their energy from biblical Christianity. All of the leaders of the abolitionist movement to do away with slavery came to faith in Jesus Christ during the Second Great Awakening. You know the history of, of slavery in England. The champion of abolishing slavery was William Wilberforce. Rich, aristocratic, wealthy man. Came to know Jesus Christ at a Methodist revival meeting. And he, he developed over time relationship with, with other Methodists. He met John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. He started to, this is a moral evil. And our country is supposed to be a Christian country, England. How can we tolerate it? So he worked force, first on abolishing the slave trade. And then he worked on abolishing slavery from the British Empire. Right before he died, the last moments of his life, Parliament passed a law abolishing slavery in the British Empire. Why did that happen? Because a Christian believed that looking at slaves the way God looks at slaves, of infinite worth and value because they're human beings, it is an evil for us to enslave them. One of his close friends, the Earl of Shaftesbury, Anthony Ashbury was his name. He, same guy, same, same group, the Chatham group, an evangelical Christian, he began to focus on child labor. Because in England, as was in the United States, ch child labor was the norm. Kids worked, they started work when they were nine years old, sometimes eight years old. They worked 12-hour days, seven days a week. Many of them never made it to 22. Shaftesbury said, that's an evil. How can we as a Christian nation tolerate putting our children in the textile mills in London, Manchester, Liverpool? So he started working to get laws passed to do away with child labor. Yes, Christianity in the religious wars has been the source of a lot of suffering, but Christianity has been the champion. There is no other worldview like it championing the betterment of human beings. That story needs to be told. Our kids need to have that balanced approach. Uh, how can a loving God send people to hell? That's, that's the big question today. You know, Rob Bell's written a book about it and shook up the evangelical world when he published that book and lots of others. One of the best, honestly, and it's, it's not a deep theological treatment, but one of the best treatments of that issue I've ever read is in uh, Tim Keller's wonderful little book, The Reason for God. I highly recommend this to you. He has the best 
treatment of the doctrine of hell I've ever read because he takes, he takes it from a position where if God is who he says he is and humans are in rebellion against him, then actually humans are choosing hell. God is not choosing to send them to hell. They are choosing hell. You have to really think about that. Another book that maybe some of you read is C.S. Lewis's classic book, The Great Divorce, which is the best, the best book I've ever read on that subject. But Lewis is one of those guys, every sentence you have to read it and sit and think about it. Okay, then you read the next sentence and you th think about it. But Lewis, in one of the sections of the book, he puts it this way. The person who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior looks at God and says, Lord, thy will be done in my life. Lewis says, the person who rejects God's grace consistently through their life and they are dying and they still reject God's grace and then they die. Lewis says, God looks at them and says, thy will be done. They chose hell. That's part of what Keller's arguing. Now that's a very different way to look at this issue. God is not sending people to hell. People are choosing to reject his grace. I believe the Bible talks of the books being opened at the great white throne in Revelation 20. We don't know what's in those books. I, I, we sort of have a hint, but we really don't. I mean, what does that mean when God... I honestly believe part of what's in those books is not a list of all the evil things that people have done who have rejected Christ. I believe, among other things, what God is going to say, here are all of the opportunities I gave you to respond to my grace. I revealed myself in creation, and I made it crystal clear who I am, but you rejected that. I revealed myself through conscience. That's what Romans chapter 2 is all about first half of that chapter. I put in you an innate sense of right and wrong, but you quickly hardened your conscience and you rejected that. And I revealed myself in my moral law, which is a part of everything in my world, and you rejected that. And lastly, I revealed myself through my son. And I have given you multiple opportunities to respond to the grace that is manifested in Jesus. And every one of those, you willfully rejected it. God is not sending people to hell. They are choosing it. I believe that's how the Bible presents it. And I believe if we don't even say that, that gives us the framework for understanding. God doesn't send people to hell. They choose that. <clears throat> Why is Christianity so clearly, this is not my word, but it's the perception, so clearly the enemy of reason and science? It's not, but it seems that way. The way that our culture has framed things today, it hasn't always been that way, but science 
is here and faith is here. They're opposites. They shouldn't be. If God reveals himself in creation and God reveals in a nonverbal way and God reveals himself verbally in his book, the Bible, those two should complement one another. They shouldn't be diametrically opposed. They should be flip sides of the same coin. They are. I have a very dear friend. He's retired now, but he's PhD. He's, he's a scientist. He, he had a research job in a university. And he was into physics. I don't understand any. I don't know why anybody would choose to go into physics. But he, he was in physics, and he just loved that stuff. He said, you know, as I study all of this, he said, I just, I'm closer to God now than I've ever been in studying. God is so gracious to me that he allows me to study his world to bring glory to him. Oh. It's a magnificent approach. But you see, now this is a general statement. It isn't true of everybody. But generally speaking, modern science begins with an anti-supernaturalism. They begin with that. If there isn't a naturalistic explanation for something, I'm not going to, I'm not going to believe it. If I can't prove it, I'm not going to believe it. It's an assumption that's just sort of generally true. But you know, science, as we understand it, and it was articulated and spelled out with all of its basic natural law. That was all discovered by Christians. Isaac Newton, I told you this last week, was a devout Christian. Which is a mystery to so many people today. It's not, but it is perceived that way. And then, why should I take the Bible literally? Which, of course, is really a big issue. This becomes an issue of apologetics then. I want to I tie with this another set of questions that relate very specifically to Christianity. And uh, it's a spin, spin off from that seventh question. These are just a few more. And I would really like to recommend, this book just came out. Uh, one of the men who wrote it is a man named Daryl Bach. I studied under him when I was in, uh, doing my theology degree. He's a research professor at New Testament at, at Dallas Seminary. But the title of the book is Truth Matters, Confident Faith in a Confusing World. I'll put all this up on the last slide if, if you're interested in the exact title. But they wrote this book, three guys, they wrote this book to equip high school students for college. And they don't deal with all of those questions. They're the ones that I think are the most important in terms of what our kids will face. But they have the answer to all these questions here. And it's extremely well done. It's very accurate, but it's, it's not deep theolo theology. It's, it's written for a high school kid, an early college kid, that can benefit from this. And that's why they wrote it. Because as I was beginning uh, tonight with the introduction, my introductory comments, all these guys are coming from the same perspective. They grew up in a situation where there was a neutrality or an acceptance at least a toleration of Christianity. That's not biblical Christianity. We're not in that culture anymore. So, where did the Bible come from? And you know, Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, those kinds of books and movies, they, they start to plant doubts in people's minds. Because Dan Brown has an agenda. If you ever looked at his website, he has a very clear agenda why he's doing what he does, why he writes the books that he's writing. But the argument of the Da Vinci Code is that the Bible is a work of Constantine. He forced it on everybody. 
And when you hear that and you hear it presented, you're like, wow, that, that, that makes sense. It was a political decision on his part. No, that's not true. Why does the Bible contain so many errors and contradictions? What doesn't? But for so many people, they think there's error and contradictions everywhere. The gospel accounts, they say, they have differing accounts of the same thing, same event. Well, that's not hard to figure out why that's the case. And the guys in this book present an answer to that that is really, really helpful. Since we do not have the original books of the Bible, how do we know it's trustworthy? Well, that's a matter of how were the biblical books transmitted? How were they, how were they, how, how were they copied? And how close were the writers to the actual events? I said this last week. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most attested historical event coming out of the ancient world. The first account of the resurrection of Jesus that is in the scriptures, the Gospel of Mark, was written in the late 40s. When did Jesus die? 33 AD. That's very very close to the event. The latest account is the Gospel of John, which is written in the early 90s. That's still... The writings of Caesar, Julius Caesar, Gallic, uh, the Gallic Wars, one of his very famous books that he wrote as he was inching his way up in the politics of Republican Rome. He wrote those books about 54, 55 B.C. Do you know the closest copy we have of Caesar's Gallic Wars is a copy that came from 750 A.D. The works of Plato. Most of Plato's works are at least 300 to 400 years after he wrote it, the most extant. Do you understand what I'm saying? But the gospel accounts, in one case, they're, they're, they're only a few years or a few decades. But nobody is saying we can't trust Plato, we can't trust it, because my goodness, there's 700 years that separate when Plato wrote it and when the first copy we have, that's an extant copy. Nobody's saying that. And when you start to really dig into it, and then you start to dig into how meticulously they copied the scriptures, and then there's a clincher. I'm sure you've all heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, found in 1947 along the east side of the Dead Sea near the community of Qumran. They found a copy of Isaiah, full copy. That copy was, was from about 250 B.C., before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, the most extant copy we had was from 900 or 1,000, it was a little hard to know exactly when, between 900 and 1,000 A.D. That's 1,000 years. Do you know what they found? There was no difference. The copy from 250 B.C. and the copy from about 950, 975 A.D. was identical. I find that a compelling piece of evidence of why I can trust the scriptures. God superintended the copying of his word as well as the writing of his word. 
And the more you study that, and that's some of the stuff that these guys talk about in, in this book, Truth Matters, an apologetic can be made for these things. But you know, we don't have a short bullet answer for this. You have to say, are you willing to listen? I, I have an answer to this. Sit down, let me explain it to you. There's no single bullet answer. Okay, I can, I can give you this in five seconds. Nope. But you can answer these questions. Then the last, the last couple. Who decided the beliefs that make up Christianity, and how do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? Because no matter how you look at it, the most important issue for biblical Christianity is the resurrection. If Jesus is still on the cross, or if Jesus is in the grave, there's no power to Christianity. It's just like any other faith. Our leader, dead. He's in a grave. But that's not Christianity. Biblical Christianity says the key doctrine is the resurrection. So how do we know he rose from the dead? And the guys do a masterful job on that. How to show us and how to build our confidence level. It is the most attested event coming out of the ancient world. And if the resurrection is true, it helps us to understand why people were willing to do what they did in those first two centuries. Why they were willing to die. Why they were willing to be martyred. When the Roman soldier stands with their sword and says, I'm going to run you through if you do not say Caesar is Lord. I'm not going to say Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord. All right, you, you believe that? Yes, I do. Are you willing to die for that? Yes, I am. And they run him through. Why would people do that if their Savior is still in a grave? I mean, these are some of the things we just have to objectively, carefully think through. It's part of our apologetic. I want to close and see if you have any questions then, because uh, in his immense and magnanimous grace, Jeff's given me an extra three minutes. He told me I had <laughs> till 20 after today. My own very deep conviction is the days of superficial, shallow Christianity are over. If we don't take that seriously, then we've got to move out of this superficial, complacent, shallow Christianity. Uh, we've been lulled into a complacency and an apathy in North America. And our Christianity fits, fits with our comfort level. We can't, we can't do that anymore. And you are, you know, for the most part, as I look around a room like this, you're young parents. You have an opportunity to really, really, really make a mark in your own life and in the life of your kids. I, I, I really challenge you. I mean, I exhort you. I admonish you. Don't pursue a shallow, superficial faith that just gives you fire insurance. You know you're going to heaven and you're fine. That's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is hard work. It, it requires time in God's word. It requires time in gathering together with the saints. It requires fellowshipping, iron rubbing iron, where you're challenging each other. We need that depth because the, there is no longer the neutrality out there for our kids. 
And as a part of that, we have to really, really, really get serious about preparing our kids for what they're going to face. I am not a doom and gloom person. I'm an immense, op- I'm, a, I'm an optimist. I'm a definitely glass half full person. But the reality is, this is a different culture. I mean, it, it really is. So we've got to be, we've got to be deep-seated in our commitment to Jesus, but deep-seated in our conviction. I'm done with superficial, shallow Christianity. Because that is not going to work anymore. It is simply not. And they're going to be, going to be mulling over our kids. We're going to lose them. And in many ways, we've lost a chunk of them already. And this, this church, and that's why I, I agreed to do this when Jeff called me, this church is trying to do something different in equipping and preparing and training the next generation of kids. I affirm what you're trying to do, but it's up to you. It's not up to Jeff. It's up to you as the parents. And the resources we have let me just suggest these two that I, I mentioned. Uh, the last one I'll talk a little bit more about next week. But um, these are the two. The first one, Daryl Box, the guy I studied under. There's other two guys. Truth Matters, Confident Faith in a Confusing World. It's a great book. It is a great book. Just came out. It's written for the late high school, early college age kid. And it it actually can benefit parents, too. Tim Keller's the other one, Reason for God. It's a little bit of an older book, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. Tim Keller is pastor of a church in lower Manhattan. He's right in the center of the cesspool. But what is valuable about Keller is he's ministering to these young urban professionals and the secularists and the atheists and the Buddhists and the Hindus and all of those that are in that mixture there. And he is, he is making a fantastic impact with people like that because he gives them honest answers and he takes time with them. And that book that I referred to, in The Reason for God, is the result of, of his years in Manhattan and how he's reached these people who are just intuitively skeptical about everything when it comes to Jesus Christ. Well, um, it's time for me to stop. So I, I'm sorry I don't have any question time, so I hope you'll forgive me. Next week, I'm going to bear my soul. I'm not going to talk about intellectual stuff. I'm not going to talk about worldview self. I'm going to tell you the lessons I've learned as a parent. So you may want to stay away next week. <laughs> I don't have any resources next week. All right?